Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show, the deadliest U.S. school shooting in a decade. In the aftermath of the attack on an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, we reflect on the tragedy and ask if this will be what pushes America to reform its controversial gun laws. As a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? Here, Minister for Justice Helen McAtee urges that people's privacy will be protected as Gardaí are to be granted the use of facial recognition technology to assist in criminal investigations. This is not about mass surveillance. There will have to be safeguards, codes of practice in place, people's individual privacy, uh, GDPR issues, all of this will have to be addressed. And later, quizzes, leaving dues, wine time Fridays and bring your own booze events. Sue Gray's damning report offers a glimpse behind the door of number 10 Downing Street during lockdown. Join in the conversation using our hashtag TonightVMTV. enough is enough and yet here we are again. America is in mourning tonight after the second worst school shooting in US history. 19 school children, all under 10 years of age and two teachers shot dead by a teenage gunman who bought two semi-automatic assault rifles for his 18th birthday. Salvador Ramos posted about his intentions on social media 30 minutes before the attack. The young victims were all in the US equivalent of primary school, kids in first, second, third class, who should have been looking forward to their school holidays this weekend in the tiny Texas border town of Uvalde. The attack has renewed debate in the States about the country's controversial gun laws. Well, we start tonight with some of the reactions to the Texas school shooting massacre in America, once again in mourning for its lost children, and searching for its soul amid deep social and political divisions. Beautiful, innocent, second, third, fourth graders. <clears throat> and how many scores of little children who witness what happened see their friends die as if they're on a battlefield, for God's sake? As a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? There is a plague, a plague upon this nation, a plague of gun violence that has taken over this country. To my Republican colleagues, imagine if it happened to you. Imagine if this was your kid or your grandkid. When are we going to do something? I'm tired, I'm, I'm so tired of getting up here and offering condolences to, to the devastated families that are out there. I'm so tired of the, excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm tired of the moments of silence. 
enough. I'm here on this floor to beg, to literally get down on my hands and knees and beg my colleagues. Find a path forward here. Work with us to find a way to pass laws that make this less likely. Well, here with me on the panel is senior lecturer in the Technological University of Dublin, Harry Brown, legal correspondent for the Business Post, Catherine Sands, and via Skype, journalist and founder of IrishCentral.com, Neil O'Dowd. And a little later, we'll be hearing from chairman of Republican Overseas UK, Greg Swenson. Um, but to come to you first, Neil O'Dowd, um, you're over in the US. Reaction there to another uh, school shooting, yet another one, the 27th this year alone. Um, America is reeling again, but it's for all too familiar a reason. Yeah, it really is. And what's the absurdity of the situation is that an 18-year-old in Texas cannot buy a drink but he can buy two assault rifles and murder all the, all the young kids that he likes. So, I mean, there's something very, very fundamentally wrong. And I think the real issue is that America is losing its democracy because 90% of the people want gun control, but they simply cannot achieve it because of the power of the gun lobby. And the gun lobby works in a very interesting way. You cannot run and win a major position within the Republican Party or in national politics, unless the gun lobby supports you. So every one of these guys who stands up and talks about how, how caring they are and how worried they are, are actually covering their backsides because they know they cannot function without the funding from the National Rifle Association. And we're seeing the same thing. We, we saw, we are a minority government in America. We saw Hillary Clinton beat Trump by three million votes. We saw Roe v. Wade uh, about to be cancelled, even though 75% of the people wanted it retained. And now the gun lobby is going to pull its weight again and force people not to vote for change because they just will stop spending money and will have them defeated by an opponent. So it's a very bleak outlook. I think hell will freeze over before the Republican Party will move on this issue. And the hypocrisy of seeing the governor of Texas, the biggest gun proponent of all, weep crocodile tears for half an hour today in Texas was truly sickening. And unfortunately, we were living through these nightmares, it seems, every few days now. And it's not going to get better until until you can get 61 votes in the U.S. Senate. Uh, that's the only way. You need 11 Republicans to side with you. Right now, not one single Republican will side with you. Uh, I, I want to bring you in on this um Catherine, like you've worked in the States, um, you're American yourself, and you've worked in the States reporting on many of the mass shootings. Yes, we hear about the big ones. We hear about the shootings that are involving children, um, like what happened in Uvalde in Texas. But there are many shootings on many days just outlined by the, the statistics that we are seeing. And this is far from a rarity. And yet, it seems that hands are tied on this one and nothing is being done. Yeah, I mean, I was actually looking into that right before uh, this evening, and just in the last seven days alone, um, there was five people shot in Cleveland, Ohio a few days ago, five people shot in Charleston, South Carolina, 
Four shot and killed. A man shot his wife and his two daughters and himself in Alabama. Ten people shot at a prom after party. So this is high school students. One killed there as well. So it's endemic. It's it's absolutely endemic across the U.S. And when I worked there in the media, it was, you know, you had to meet a certain threshold in order for it to be covered because otherwise it was, oh, how many dead? Two? You know, that's just a domestic. And with that, when we hear about this sentiment out there that 90% of people would like to see gun laws tightened, is that the case? Is that, is that the real sense? Because you will hear a different story when you talk to the Republicans, when you talk to those who would like to keep things exactly as they are. I think most people do. I, I would be inclined to think that that would be the case. And I don't think that the people legislating, and it's often Republicans, I don't think that they represent the majority of people. And I think that at the essence of this, I think there's a sinister element of classism to it, because I think a lot of those Repu Republican uh, legislators, they can afford to send their kids to schools that are fortified like prisons. And to them, it's less of a threat on their own personal lives. They don't see this as being a real reality for them. Um, Harry, on this one, and... How would you say this this explains the America of today, what we've seen happening here? And we know this is not unusual. No. This I, is normal. Yeah, as you said, we've been here before. I mean, just last week in Buffalo, it wasn't in a school, it was in a supermarket and 10 people killed by a racist gunman uh, who was targeting uh, people of colour uh, for his own sick political reasons. And Joe Biden has been here before. In December 2012, he stood behind Obama. Obama made Joe Biden his point man on bringing in new gun laws after the Sandy Hook massacre. Um, the result of that was a pretty bad bill that still didn't get passed. The, uh, the Congress uh, at that time didn't get through the Senate. So, um, and, you know, so when Biden gets up there and says, when are we going to do this? He knows we're not. That the, the possibility of, you know, and what's going on here is... It's very cynical when you see Republicans talking about mental health, mental health, and mental health in order to avoid talking about guns. But it is more than guns. There's a poison here, or it's more than just laws about guns. This kid, barely more than a child himself, this 18-year-old, decides to take the little money he worked, he earned working in the kitchen at Wendy's for his 18th birthday and get himself two assault rifles in a shop where there was also a restaurant attached. That's the, that's the culture that we're talking about here, where the, uh, the, the, the normalization of guns is deeply rooted in Texas and deeply rooted in American history, deeply rooted in American racism, in American militarism. And it's really so awful and there's really no improvement in sight. Well, a little earlier, uh, I spoke to Chairman of Republicans Overseas UK, Greg Swenson. I began by asking him how he can explain the events in Uvalde. Well, I, I, first of all, I can't explain it. You know, this is a, a madman that has perpetrated a, a horrible crime, obviously. And so there's no explanation for that. You know, the, I think that most Democrats, including the president, will try to blame the gun lobby um, which he's clearly stated uh, both today and, and as well as yesterday when he made his statements. Um, I'm not sure the gun lobby would have any effect. If the NRA, NRA disappeared tomorrow, it wouldn't have changed the outcome of this. You know, obviously there is a, a, a completely deranged person mm -hmm. that has perpetrated a horrible crime. I'm not sure that, you know, Republicans or Democrats obviously neither party would condone it. And, you know, this is just a matter of, of, you know, getting back to the debate about gun rights. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, and, and uh, you won't condone it, but at the same time, there's no changing gun laws that you'd like to see as a result of this. What about his easy access to high-powered weapons? Do you think that was a factor yeah. in his ability to go in, get a gun for his 18th birthday, two rifles, in fact, and then go into a classroom yeah. full of children and shoot 19 dead and their teachers? No, it's... It's horrible. I mean, I, 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 I can't explain it. I can't explain what would go through someone's head that would do that. You know, this is this is a obviously a deranged person that would do such a thing. So do, uh, you've I'm, mentioned I'm sure, that about yeah. it. Sorry, just Greg, you've mentioned a couple of times yeah, about a deranged sure. person. It is something that Republican yeah. Mitch McConnell said, describing Salvador Ramos as a deranged young man, a maniac, saying mental illness is at the root of all of this. Do you agree sure. that that's the problem here, that this, uh, in essence, was a loner on a mission and it was something that was entirely unavoidable? Of course. I mean, no, I wouldn't say that, it, you know, who, who knows? It's hard to argue whether it was unavoidable or not. Most of the time, the perpetrators of these crimes have obvious mental illness. They're always perpetrated or often perpetrated by young men who've exhibited serious antisocial behavior. It's a little too early to understand what this person demonstrated. Um, you know, he did have some social media you know, comments before the day before, but, but look, you know, and, and often they obtain the guns illegally. In this case, it sounds like he did not obtain the guns illegally. Usually there's some advanced warning about these situations. In this case, there wasn't. It, okay. It's, but it's but horrible. just on that, he yeah. didn't, he didn't, as you say, obtain these guns illegally. He got them for his 18th birthday. Are you opposed then to, to background checks on this? that background checks no, would occur that would ensure that someone like Salvador Ramos would never get his hands on a semi-automatic weapon. Of course, I'm not opposed to background checks. There are significant background checks in place now. I'm not sure that more background checks would have prevented this, nor would they have prevented mass shootings that have occurred in Europe over the last 10 years. It's, it's a horrible moment. I'm not sure, you know, whether, whether there are gun control laws or not, mass shootings happen. You know, okay. They happen in Paris yeah. in 2015. They happen in Norway in the last decade. It's, it's completely mm. disgusting. No one's arguing that point. But the question is, would, would you know, background checks or, or more aggressive background checks have changed anything? I don't know that right now. But quite more, more often than not, they would not have affected anything. It's, have, more about have... mental, it's more about mental illness and challenging the perpetrators of these things, not the gun lobby or... Anticipating or some, some that he may have been someone who might have done something like this. Is that what you're saying? I just yeah. want to bring you up on what you mentioned Absolutely. other countries Claire, there. Sure. U.S. mass shootings. Yeah. So far in 2022, there's been 213 uh, mass shootings in the States. If you look at the number of school shootings occurring in G7 countries, say between 2009 and 2018, there were 288 in the U.S., in Canada, sure. two. In France, two. In Germany, one. The UK, there were none. Japan, there were none. And Italy, there were none. The US is an outlier yeah. in this instance. Claire, Claire, we have an epidemic of violence in the United States right now. I'm so not what, proud of what, that. What should Republicans horrible. do about that? Because we're, what we're oh, hearing oh, is I, I there are the 50 exactly legislators who, who don't sure. want to see tightened federal gun laws. Because that won't change the problem. The problem, in fact, if you look at the cities where there's elevated violence and homicides, 
most of those cities have strict gun control. In fact, guns are illegal in Chicago, my hometown. There were 800 homicides last year. What the Republicans are advocating is prosecuting criminals who, who actually perpetrate these crimes. Okay, um, there we'll have to leave it. Greg Swenson, chairman of Republicans Thanks, Overseas Thanks UK. For me. Thank you. And we'll get some reaction to what Greg had to say in a few moments' time. But let's go live now to CNN national correspondent Chris Wynn, who's in Ovalde, Texas, for us tonight. Um, Chris, can you bring us up to date with the latest briefing there from the Texas governor, who's given more details around the shooting? Hey, Claire, this is a very close-knit community trying to process their collective grief. Uh, the town roughly 90 miles west of San Antonio, a uh, population of roughly 16,000 people. So as you can imagine, it's likely uh, that, you know, everyone knew someone who was directly impacted by this horrific tragedy. Behind me is Robb Elementary School, the site where that shooting took place yesterday, in which 19 kids and two teachers were killed by the gunmen. Uh, law enforcement officials officials say the gunman was a high school dropout who lived with his grandmother. Uh, they believe that he acted alone. And uh, those who knew him described him as someone who was bullied uh, while in school. Co-workers say that he mainly kept to himself. Uh, he worked at a local fast food restaurant. And so uh, law enforcement officials saying that the gunman did not have a criminal history, uh, no history of mental health illness uh, in terms of, um, you know, being recorded. And so, uh, you know, we are awaiting more details um, about, you know, more about the gunman. We expect to learn more tomorrow. Uh, but the governor did say that the gunman, um, that the gunman posted on social media roughly 30 minutes before the shooting with his uh, intent to unleash this carnage on the school behind me. Uh, shortly after that press conference, though, a spokesperson for Facebook uh, clarified, saying that the messages were private one-on-one -on -one, uh, messages between him and another individual. Our network has since learned uh, that that uh, individual uh, was a 15-year-old girl in Germany. So a lot to unpack here, and this is something that we'll be keeping an eye on throughout the night. Back to you. Okay, Chris Wynn, joining us from Uvalde, Texas tonight. Thank you for the very latest um, from there. Um, I'd like to go back to my panel and, and just bring us back through some of what um, our Republican spokesperson were saying there, Greg Swenson. Um, Neil, uh, to you on that, the defence being there that this was, you know, a guy with, with, with who, who was a maniac, essentially, that he was a lone wolf, that he was a loner out on a mission and nothing around gun laws would change that. Uh, nonsense, nonsense and nonsense. If, if he wasn't able to obtain a gun, if a gun was illegal to be held by an 18-year-old, as it certainly should be, let me ask you a question. What do you think an 18-year-old would buy two auto assault rifle weapons for? What would he be using them for? Obviously, the only answer is to shoot someone. And it's as basic as that. He doesn't go hunting deer with it. He was ready to kill people. The guy who sold him the gun must have known that he had some bad intention in mind. And this is a great sort of misunderstanding about guns and gun laws. They can be effective. They can be extraordinarily effective. They're very effective in some states where they have local, very strict gun laws. And it makes practical sense that you bring in laws that curtail guns because this country was founded on the mythology of the gun, the Wild West, 
And you look at a state like Texas, which was founded on the mythology of the Alamo, which involved, you know, brave white men shooting Mexicans and then freeing Texas or winning over Texas. So you're up against an entire philosophy and an entire history, an entire block of thinking that is so narrow in its focus that you, you have you can never contravene any aspect of the Second Amendment. Yeah, let, but there's let, another go on, go on, there's another part the American Constitution that guarantees the right to life and liberty. And that's been totally overlooked. The right to life, guaranteeing the right to life in the American Constitution is there in large print. It is not guaranteed anymore. That is a fact that the young kids who were killed today or yesterday had the right to life and it was taken away from them. We, we hear about this, Harry, this constitutional right to bear arms. Is This is what it comes back to time and time again. Uh, why is it held so dear uh, in US culture? Uh, and what is it? What's the context to all of this? Like, do you believe this is just clearly an outdated idea now? Well, yeah, and, and its origins are pretty poisonous as well. I mean, the, it, it wasn't in the original Constitution as such, but it was in one of the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, the so-called Bill of Rights. So the Second Amendment is this sacred text. But the Second Amendment does pretty good historiography now. There's debates about this, but there's a strong theory that I think is really quite plausible that a lot of the pressure to bring this into the Constitution came from essentially white men who wanted to be able to arm into small groups to keep slaves in their place on the plantation and to apprehend slaves who escaped from the plantation. And so that the pressure for the Second Amendment essentially came from slave patrols. In other words, it was a way of controlling the black population. And of course, also Indian patrols, because as Niall pointed out, the, you know, the taming of the West was an armed event in many respects. So what's and it turned into, what's it turned into now? And how, yeah. how has this become such a divisive thing in America? And, it, and you know, it really is a divisive thing in America. I mean, what the fact is that most people want stricter gun control, but Republicans vote on gun control and Democrats don't vote on gun control. It is very, it is very passionately held. But I think one of the reasons that it has stayed such an important part of the culture over the last century or more is that America keeps going and fighting wars all over the world. And every generation of young men has been trained to dehumanize some kind of other and to be prepared to kill them. Let's talk about that legislation. That when we heard Joe Biden saying it, you know, going, you know, we need action on this and this lack of political will for any change. So if there are 50 legislators holding up that bill, is there any way around it, Catherine? Um, I mean, state by state, like a lot of states have been taking their own action. I think what's being called for mainly is a federal uh, red flag law, which would basically be a law that you can petition a court to have somebody's firearms removed if they're deemed to be a danger to themselves and others. That's what a lot of gun control activists are calling for now. Um, you know, at the moment, I mean, we have the midterms later this year. Um, we don't know what the future is going to hold for the House and the Senate after that. But at the moment, there is a Democratic, you know, control a little bit in those houses. So you could see uh, some push towards getting these enacted. But Texas, you know, notably last year alone enacted seven pieces of legislation to enhance uh, gun rights for individuals. One of them allowed them to carry them without a permit. Um, and one of them actually made Texas what they call a Second Amendment sanctuary state, which would protect it from federal gun control laws. But you would ask, is that by popular demand? I mean, no. <laughs> I would say no. 
Um, but the thing is, the Senate especially never really acts by popular demand. Like the Senate in itself, that's a whole nother discussion because it's not representing the people at large. Yeah, and just, um, Neil, to come back to you, if you're still with us on that, about what's likely to happen now, Sandy Hook was supposed to be a watershed moment, wasn't it? Um, is, there, is there any hope at all that what's happened in Evalde, Texas, could change and could prompt some reform? I think it can only be done through the ballot box. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it will be done in the midterm. There are 50 votes right now. A filibuster would, would be 61 votes would defeat a filibuster. So you need 11 Republicans. Um, Senator uh, Chris Murphy says that he has at least 10 who he knows privately would probably vote for the right bill in the right circumstances. But uh, the fact is that it's almost impossible to get it through when you have figures like Mitch McConnell who are just total obstructionists. Their whole idea is do not let the Democrats pass any legislation whatsoever and block everything that comes from the other side, no matter what it's about, gun control or poverty or anything else. So I think it's a very difficult uphill climb. But I do think eventually, eventually, you will get a Congress that will, in fact, overturn parts of the Second Amendment and install rules that make sense, such as background checks, such as not giving guns to minors, which would seem so obvious, and not glorifying the culture, which unfortunately is very much a part of America as well. Um, Catherine, to you finally on this, as someone who, who grew up in the US and, and, and went through the school system there, you, would you have felt... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well aware of the threat of being shot in school? Is that something that you were aware of growing up? And, and how do you think? kids and their parents around America are feeling right now or are they just too used to what they they see happening um, to be utterly shocked by it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a mixture of terror and, and numbness too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the 
the paranoia, and it's not even paranoia because it's built on reality, the fear that it lives in every American's mind is very real. You know, every time you go into a shop and you're the only one there and there's somebody else there, you're checking to see if they have a gun on them. You know, you're avoiding escalating arguments because you fear that the other person might have a gun. Um, you know, you're avoiding any rows in traffic. You're, you know, you live, and the, the effect that that has on your psyche, I think, is, is very profound. And I can only imagine it's going to be even worse on the generation growing up with that. Okay, there we'll have to leave that. That's all we have time for. My thanks to Neil O'Dowd, who joined us from the US, and Catherine Sands, who is here with us in studio. Harry Brown will be staying on. After the break, Garthi looked to facial recognition technology to assist with the investigation of crimes. But will it infringe on our civil liberties? Stay with us. Welcome back at today's annual Garda Representative Association Conference in Westport. Minister for Justice Helen McEntee announced that she's to ask Cabinet approval for the allow for the use of facial recognition technology by Garda, insisting that it will not be used for indiscriminate surveillance or mass data gathering and that it will serve as an important tool in tackling serious cases of crime. Harry Brown is still with us and we're also joined by Fine Gael Senator Barry Ward, Assistant Professor in the UCD Centre for Digital Policy, Elizabeth Farries, and via Skype, former Assistant Garda Commissioner Pat Leahy. But first, let's hear Commissioner Drew Harris defending the proposed technology. The actual piece about facial recognition, that's not some blanket power. We will use it where there's serious crime to investigate or we have a national security issue. But it could also be then to search for a missing person, a missing child. And again, it's essential for searching for particular suspects in CCTV, which is retrieved for evidence purposes. OK, well, let's hear a little bit more about this. Um, Pat Leahy, to you first. In your experience, why, why do guards need this? And in what scenarios do you see it being used? Well, look, we live in a digital age, Claire, and it's after emerging over the last five to 10 years as a possibility first, and now it's actually being used quite uh, frequently and quite openly across the world in a policing uh, context. And I'm not surprised now that it has landed on our laps uh, as a proposal. I'm also not surprised that the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and IREC will come out strongly against this because it does represent uh, a big move into an area where human rights are at stake, uh, data uh, protection is at stake, privacy laws are at stake. So I do think it'll, it'll take more than an assurance from the commissioner or any other individual uh, before people will let go of this. I think we have a long battle on our hands to get it in. But if we don't use it in certain circumstances, we'll fall behind in an age of technology and people will accuse us uh, after an atrocity that uh, of not having it in place when we should have. But the protections have to be in place. 
and it's going to be uh, a tall order to convince uh, the likes of the Irish Council of Civil Liberties and IREC, as I say, to uh, accept this because it is a big move. Yeah, it's a big move. Um, on that one, Elizabeth Farris, you work in the area of digital policy and you're strongly opposed to facial recognition technology. Tell us why. Well, I mean, let's look at the purpose of policing facial recognition technology at its core. The purpose is to keep society safe, presumably. But we're seeing a lot of evidence um, to suggest that the opposite is actually true. There are concerns about accuracy. There are concerns about discrimination undue surveillance, scope creep, a host of risks that have come to the point that there creates a level of bias, which has become scientifically unacceptable, to the point that it's not just the ICCL, it's experts, officials, jurisdictions around the world that have called for a ban to policing surveillance technology. Okay, so tell us about the inaccuracies, given that this technology, I suppose, we see it used day to day, yeah. um, in social media and elsewhere, even when you take a photo, it kind of links up face with other faces in your album and all that sort of thing. Is it that same technology that will be used on a kind of, I suppose, much more <clears throat> scientific scale, I imagine, yeah. in the course of a, a Gartha operation? Well, I mean, if you're going to put legislation in place supporting the use of technology, which can be quite invasive, you want to have evidence that it actually works. And what we're seeing is evidence that it, it, the tech doesn't work. I mean, the often cited uh, study is the UK Metropolitan Metropolitan Police FRT, facial recognition tech, was found to have an error rate of 81%. MIT found that it works. There's a low error rate for white men, but a high error rate for dark-skinned women. U.S. National Institute of Standards says that there's a high level of racial bias within the tech. Put all those biases together, it becomes unacceptable to use this technology for policing purposes. Okay, uh, Barry, on that one, and this is something that we're going to hear uh, Minister Helen McEntee put before the Cabinet. Um, it is controversial, it's not clear-cut, and then you have these inaccuracies um, that Elizabeth has shown up in the data that she's presented, where you're going to face the risk of picking somebody out in a, in a profile under this technology, and that person wasn't there at all. Yeah, well, the, the first thing to remember is that this is about empowering the Gardaí and creating safer um, communities where people feel safe. But it's important to realise that this technology is not the, it's not evidence in anything. It is a system that allows the Gardaí to deal with huge amounts of data. So, for example, in an investigation for a crime, you might have hundreds of hours of CCTV footage or, or other kinds of, of data. This technology allows you to sort through that and to identify the bits that a Garda would actually look at. The important thing is that at the end of the day, it's a guard who looks at that image and decides whether that image should be used as part of the case or not. The technology or the software or the artificial intelligence will never make that decision. Mm. It's always a human decision what forms part of the evidence that goes to court if that's what happens. But what if you're... So, you're what, if, what if we have this level of inaccuracy there because you are be relying on, on tech... Well, you on technology, but that, how, yeah. how would they necessarily know because, that it's inaccurate? Well, well, let's say, for example, you're parsing through hundreds of hours of CCTV footage. The technology identifies that a particular person might be visible in a particular frame. That doesn't just go and is not taken as fact. It's then up to a human investigator, a member of Ngoi Chiakona, to look at that and satisfy himself or herself that that is usable. They don't just take the technology as the final word on the issue. And I think it's much better to look at this as a system to allow them to get through huge volumes of data, huge volumes of material that could be used as evidence, much of which will not be relevant, but to identify maybe the parts that they need to look at so that they can extract a relevant piece that might be evidence in a criminal trial. A way of speeding 
speeding up investigations, a way, a way of streamlining um, Garda work, Garda resources in this area, Harry? Yeah, I, I just... Pat Lee, he used a phrase there, you know, after an atrocity, people will say uh, we should have used it if, if we don't. Mm -hmm. And I do think, you know, if we think back to what we were talking about in the first part of the program, it's tempting always in relation to crime to say, well, if there's anything that could have prevented it or anything that could detect the perpetrator, then obviously we should use it. The fact is, though, a substantial number of people in this country regard the Gardaí as a force that they need to be safe from and not a force that they need to be protected by. That, that, that abuses of policing are not necessarily constant and widespread here, but they're, they're pretty frequent. And abuses of privacy, abuses of data happen frequently. I mean, Derek Quigley, the blogger, was a dear friend of mine and passed away now a few years ago. Um, the, a, a guard was responsible for releasing dreadful private uh, footage of her into the public domain shortly before her death. You know, I, I think that it's important that we don't easily give these powers away, and not only because they sometimes result in errors, but also because, you know, surveillance is a problem. We, we do some privacy in our lives. Uh, Pat, do you want to come back in on what Harry had to say there, that it's further eroding maybe a lack of trust that people have in the Gardaí already? Well, you can't dispute that, Claire, because they're all uh, legitimate concerns that people have. And, and that's what I'm bringing to the table here. I'm saying, look, there's a long road to go on this because the concerns are legitimate. And there is both a racial and a gender bias that we've seen. There's evidence of that. We have evidence of, of, a, of a company last year in the UK collected 20 billion uh, facial images to create their own facial recognition database. Now, it ended up costing them 7.5 million to the um, Information Commissioner of the UK. But these are the things that frighten people. And we've had uh, several cases in a policing context where the wrong person was arrested and detained. So all of these issues are real issues. So it's a really, really strong debate that's going to take place and in relation to this. So but there on, are benefits there. There's no doubt about it. So on that, Pat, when you're saying that you've had cases where, you know, the wrong people could be arrested, would Gardaí be worried about using this technology? technology and the potential fallout and, and, and consequences that, that using it in the wrong way or identifying the wrong person would have on potentially collapsing a case or an investigation? Well, if they don't have those fears, they're not ready for this type of technology. I mean, it's a biometric technology, Claire, and the safeguards that have to be put in place have to be significant because it is stepping into an area that we haven't been in before. It has huge negative potential as well as pretty significant positive potential. And the, the debate around this is going to be quite robust, I would imagine. But if the guards weren't thinking like that about the dangers associated with this, we'd be in a very different place. And I'd be really, really concerned about that myself. But oh. we do know it's going to have to meet the human rights standards. It's going to have to be lawful. It's going to have to be necessary. It's going to have to be right. proportionate. And they're going to have to prove this and show the governance that's going to be put on top of this. What, what Pat's saying there, Elizabeth, about, you know, meeting human rights standards, is there ever such a way that you could have legislation around this that would meet human rights standards and you would still have facial recogni recognition technology to help solve crime? I think that's the question um, between experts, is do we legislate to contain the risks or do we call for an outright ban? 
And we're seeing again around the world, we have petitions from civil society organizations for bans. The European Parliament called for a ban on facial recognition through a non-binding resolution. Multiple cities and other jurisdictions have decided to ban the technology outright because their concern is that the risks of the, of the technology cannot be constrained by regulation. The risks about accuracy, about discrimination, about undue surveillance, scope creep, the misuse of the guardee of the data which was established here. These are all risks that haven't been addressed. So why would we push that technology forward given the risks when the legislation itself can't constrain those concerns? Uh, Barry, what would you say to that given well, the, the risks that yeah. are involved here? Firstly, I work as a criminal defence barrister, so my job frequently is to challenge Guardian exactly the issues that Harry's raised. And I agree with a lot of what he said. But there's two things. Firstly, the reason why we want to do it is because of the results it can deliver from the point of view of crime detection, but more importantly, crime resolution and bringing evidence to a trial. What's really important, though, is the safeguards that are put in place. We don't know the details of this legislation yet, but we know that it will have to be GDPR compliant. It'll have to comply with Irish data protection reg regulations. It'll have to apply, comply, as Pat said, with all the human rights mechanisms that we've put in place. We have a very... We really have the infrastructure to store all the data and everything well, that we're talking about. about storing all the data. First of all, all the data is already stored or are already stored by Gardaí. So, for example, in the course of an investigation, the Gardaí will gather a whole load of evidence. It, some of it will be electronic. Much of it nowadays will be electronic. That's already stored. What this technology would be used for is to sort through that. The alternative to that is to invite an individual guarder to sit down and spend hundreds of hours watching CCTV. It has been outlawed elsewhere, though. I mean, I think in San Francisco it's been banned. In other Can places... I, could I suggest been... that San Francisco or the United States is the last place I would go to seek guidance on what we should be having in place in terms of a criminal justice system? The alternative to this is to tie the guardies' hands behind their back and to say, instead of having software that sifts through vast amounts of data, we should have have individual guardy who could otherwise be out solving crime, sitting down watching hundreds of hours of CCTV. This is a way of short-circuiting that. It doesn't mean that we can't have protections in place. Okay. It doesn't mean there shouldn't be a robust debate and it doesn't mean the legislation shouldn't have in place really strict controls and protections for individuals. There will be people watching who will say, look, anything, and I know it was brought up earlier, um, you know, anything, any tool to help solve serious crime, to help catch perpetrators of crime is something that should be welcomed, Harry. Any society has to balance the, uh, the need to do that to protect people against the rights of individuals. We already sacrifice an awful lot in terms of our privacy to, the surve to surveillance by companies, as Pat pointed out there. And I think that we should always think long and hard before we cede any further rights to the state. OK, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, coming up after the break, boozy brawls and bad behaviour in number 10 Downing Street. Stay with us.
Welcome back. Wine on the walls, karaoke madness and machines, drunkenness and a fight. Just your average night out in 10 Downing Street. Today, Sue Gray's long-awaited report was released detailing the goings-on among government staff behind closed doors while the rest of the UK was under strict lockdown. Harry Brown and Barry Ward are still with me. But first, I'd like to go to political editor of GB News, Darren McCaffrey. Um, Darren, Sue Gray's final report into rule breaking, key to this, were that many events should not have been allowed to happen, she says, and senior leadership must bear responsibility for this culture. What culture is she talking about? Yeah, pretty incredible, Claire, in many regards. Pretty brazen, the rules that have been broken inside uh, Downing Streets. As you say, parties going on to 4.30am in the morning, red wine spills in places, fights breaking out. Uh, the cleaners, the custodians of Number 10, effectively telling people they're breaking the rules, they should stop, and then being abused by Downing Street uh, staff. Uh, you know, it goes on and on, even to the point where the Prime Minister's former principal private secretary who'd organised some of these parties, at one point uh, wrote in a WhatsApp message that he felt he'd gotten away uh, with it. Such was the kind of arrogance almost of those inside Number 10. And this is the place in the UK that's received more fines than anywhere else. The place that made the rules with, what, over 100 and I think 20 fines handed out to over 80 uh, people. And you're right, Sue Gray, her report we've been waiting on for months and months and months, it feels like an eternity. And she came out today and said, essentially, uh, this behaviour was unacceptable, not up to the standards that one would expect in public life, unsurprisingly. But in the end, it is officials and politicians who should bear responsibility. The big question, of course, uh, tonight is just how far Boris Johnson is doing that. He ultimately apologised today, said that the buck stops with him, if you like, but he is not prepared to resign over any of this. His argument is that he feels what he went to inside Downing Street, that they were work events, the police somewhat have come down on his side in that, and that the worst of those excesses that I've just spelt out about those late-night parties, that he wasn't there. In many cases, he wasn't even in London. Yeah, let's have a little listen to what he had to say today and some reaction to that from the opposition. Sue Gray's report has emphasised that it is up to the political leadership in Number 10 to take ultimate responsibility, and, of course, I do. The truth is... They set the bar for his conduct lower than a snake's belly. Can he think of any other Prime Minister who would have allowed such a culture of indiscipline to take place under their watch? And if it did, would they not have resigned? And again, we heard him say, hand on heart, he thought it was a work event, a phrase we have heard many times before. Who's still buying this, Darren? Is the Conservative Party split on it? Yeah, I think they are. And it's really notable today that actually when the Prime Minister was making that statement, essentially half of the Conservative Party just got up and left the House of Commons. That's not exactly a great show of support for the Prime Minister. Many, frankly, in private are embarrassed by this. They're pretty ashamed by it. But they really just wanted to go away. And I, I you know, I think the Prime Minister is going to survive uh, this, even though many do think it probably is a resigning issue. But in the end, they don't want this to drag on anymore. They know it's been doing damage to the government, but also they just don't know who the hell, frankly, would replace uh, Boris Johnson. There's no obvious contender. They don't want to draw an out election, uh, leadership uh, race. And, and deep down, I think some of them also know that in the end, Boris Johnson is probably the best campaigner they've got. Better the devil you know, if you like. Uh, but yeah, this has been deeply damaging. Of course it is. Many people will not 
look favourably on the Prime Minister again. But also there's a lot of people up and down the country who are frankly quite bored of this story and do want it to go away and are talking about other issues like the cost of living uh, crisis. I mean, the most uncomfortable bit the Prime Minister well, I saw him today in Parliament, was actually answering Keir Starmer's questions about what he's going to do to try and help people get out of this inflation crisis. He doesn't have an answer to that, and that's pretty tough. As for Keir Starmer, though, and this is one of the things that has also helped Boris Johnson, of course, he's under investigation by Durham police. That means that his attacks don't seem to have the same sting they did a matter of months ago, though, that, of course, that could all change, and politics yeah. can always change pretty quickly, that if he has to resign because he's been fined uh, by the police, the attention will quickly turn again to Boris Johnson because in the end, he has been found to have broken the law. The man who made the rules broke the rules, the first prime minister ever in British history to have broken the law while in number 10 Downing Street. Pretty incredible stuff. All right, Darren McCaffrey, thank you for your insights there. Um, I'd like to bring the panel in here on this one. And Barry Ward just goes to show politicians can nearly get away with anything. Well, I don't think that's true here. It might be true in Britain, but uh, there's no doubt about it. Darren using words like brazen and arrogant there. It is, it is eye-watering for us to look at what has happened there, but also to see how Britain has fallen from grace and the government there lacking any real moral credibility. And for us in Ireland, the big impact of that is their inability now to deal with issues that we need them to deal with surrounding the Northern Ireland Protocol, the Good Friday Agreement, re-establishing government in Northern Ireland. Um, it's hard to see how Boris Johnson can focus on that in a real way to deliver what needs to be delivered when he has all of this going on in his back garden. Problems of his own making, uh, but problems for which he probably ultimately won't be held Yeah, but very damaging what we're seeing there. It's actually not just damaging, I think, for UK po politics and, and for a UK population, but um, for the trust and credibility of politicians, and that does apply here as well. Yeah, well, it does, and none of us wants to see that. Now, I, I do not think that there is any politician in Ireland who would behave at that level in that way, even, like, now or even in, well, in the Well, we did have our own years. instance, as we know, during, none during of lockdown. Not a single one of the instances to which you're referring is comparable to what has happened in 10 Downing Street. None of the kinds of descriptions that you saw in the report would mirror what happened here. Irish politicians, I think, are generally very responsible, but are also much closer to the people mm -hmm. than politicians are in Britain. Yeah. They're accountable in a way that British politicians aren't. Accountable in a way that British politicians aren't. And, and Harry, you're nodding away with that. Do you, th do you, do you feel there is a difference there and what, what do you make of what we're seeing over I, in the I, UK? I think that is true. I think we see our politicians and we see them relatively close and we'd hear, we'd hear if these things were going on. I, I had to laugh at one of the opposition politicians talking about Boris Johnson's culture of indiscipline. That could be his epitaph, really. You know, I mean, it's nearly his best feature, actually, his culture of indiscipline. So I don't see there being any danger of him being held accountable for this and don't see that epitaph being written for a while yet. The idea of this you know, the Tories lining up to praise the report, but at the same time to forgive Boris. It's, it's all just such a show. The idea even of this being a long-awaited report, I think most people would rather just kind of forget that these things happen. And, and the fact that it is a long-awaited report. that we, we, yeah. we heard being used several times today. Yeah. And of course, it comes right up against the uh, Platinum Jubilee. The, the, the bloody Platinum Jubilee is coming up, Mum. So I think that the British people will be nicely distracted very soon. Yeah, by, interesting uh, to know, is all this bad press likely to make a dent to local elections at the start of May, Barry? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think it will, actually. And I think there is one of the things Darren said there about the sad state of affairs where they don't see who can replace Boris. It is a sad day when there aren't people getting into politics who have higher standards and higher capacity. OK, there we'll have to leave it. That's it from us. My thanks to Darren, Harry, Barry, all of our guests on the show tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. 
You can also now find us on Instagram, Tonight BMTV. And all the late team here say goodnight. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 